Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And a reminder to new listeners that Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare is a nonpartisan group. And we are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We support a nonprofit expanded and improved Medicare for All system, one that covers all individuals residing in the U.S. We advocate that the program cover all medically necessary services, including primary care and prevention, inpatient and outpatient care, emergency care, prescription drug coverage, durable medical equipment, long-term care, palliative care, mental health services, dental services, substance abuse treatment, chiropractic services, vision and hearing services. Kentuckians for single-payer health care supports and improved and expanded Medicare program that provides care with no deductibles, no co-payments, no co-insurance, a true single-payer plan. We're broadcasting our program from the Habern Building in downtown Louisville as part of the nonprofit programming here at WFMP 1065 Forward Radio, forwardradio.org. The views and opinions expressed on our show of those are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single Payer Radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. And if you miss a show, you can go to the Forward Radio archives. We're up on the SoundCloud there at forwardradio.org. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us. Go to forwardradio.org. Doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively are back in the studio zooming in today's de- guest. Mike? Uh, well, let me, uh, this is Michael Flynn, retired surgeon from the uh, L Department of Surgery. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I make or opinions I express on this program represent my personal opinions and do not represent the opinions of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. This is Eugene Shavley. I'm a retired rural surgeon, Campbellsville, Kentucky. I had a clinical appointment to the Department of Surgery at UofL. What I say does not reflect the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville, nor Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky. Well, we have a special guest today. Uh, Melissa Patrick is a journalist, 
She is a staff reporter for Kentucky Health News. Uh, interesting background. She um, was a nurse practiced in the uh, late uh, 1980s and early 1990s. Went back to school, got a degree in journalism, community uh, communications, leadership and development. And our topic today is a recent article that she uh, had written and was published in Kentucky Health News uh, dealing with um, the Kentucky health system performance compared to the rest of the U.S. So, Melissa, welcome. And again, thank you for coming on and discussing this important issue with us. As we've done with guests in the past, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like for as long as you like. Uh, I would ask you, though, since most of our listeners, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming uh, some or a lot anyway, probably haven't read your article. So I think it would be helpful if you could kind of give an overview of, of the main issues there so that the listeners have an idea what we're going to be talking about, at least for part of the time. So the floor is yours. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I've been at Kentucky Health News since 2014 and uh, came into this uh, journalism career a little late in life, but I've sure loved it. And um, I, I write from everything from diabetes to health policy. And this particular article falls more into um, health policy because the Commonwealth Fund, which uh, is a New York-based foundation, does these rankings every year, uh, an annual ranking on how health systems perform in each state. And, and basically the Commonwealth Fund is looking to answer three questions. How good is your access to care in each state? Are Americans getting the right type of health care in the right health care setting and at the right time? And then they want to know just in general how healthy are uh, the people in each state, how healthy are Americans. But because COVID hit, it gave them a, a, just a very unique opportunity to see what a public health emergency, the impact of that public health emergency on our health care systems. So, they, so this year they also added a category that basically looked at how our healthcare had. So generally there was no surprise in where Kentucky ranked in this uh, particular ranking, which only, you know, it takes into account, um, you know, it doesn't take into account the, other than the one category, sort of the, the basic standing health status of Kentuckians. It just looks at how the system's are managing what they have to deal with. And so it, it looks at that, found Kentucky ranked 41st out of all states in Washington, D.C. And that is um, not surprising. That's kind of where we fall most years. But when they looked at the COVID-19 response, uh, even the researchers were a little bit surprised that Kentucky ranked so low because, um, for several reasons, Kentucky ranked 49th in that category. So in essence, this report says Kentucky has done a very poor job um, managing its COVID-19 response. But um, one of the researchers just expressed complete shock about that. She said most, of, most states that have expanded Medicaid, which means that they have allowed more poor Kentuckians to have access to health care. They've expanded the number of people who can have health insurance. 
um, had, had actually done better in their category of COVID response. But Kentucky, which did expand Medicaid uh, and, and increased our, the number of people on insurance dramatically, um, didn't do so well. And so this particular researcher said, you have to look at the whole picture, that it's not that having health insurance certainly improves access to care, but there's more to talk about. You have to talk about personal choice. You have to talk about uh, the baseline status of health of people. And so that was just a real interesting finding in this study. Um, you know, it, it, it looked at all sorts of things from um, hospitalization and readmissions. It looked at dental care. It looked at um, just simply um, access and affordability. It, it's a comprehensive report. Once again, Kentucky ranked 41st overall, and, and that's not surprising. Uh, Jane, you want to begin? Yes, I was really interested in that Kentucky expanded Medicare almost uh, more than any other state, and we were one of the first to do that. So it increased the uh, uh, availability uh, for, for health care, and it also uh, increased or decreased the number of patients with no insurance. Yet our outcomes uh, did not change. We're, we're still doing uh, terrible. And particularly with COVID, we do bad with obesity, hypertension, uh, and and smoking, and multiple other diseases, including drug addiction and suicide. So my my question is, what are the other factors? What are we leaving out that keeps us in such a very low uh, rating? Well, you know, I, I, I recognize that the black and white of the health outcomes in Kentucky um, have not, the needle has not shifted. But um, I, I think to, to simply, um, to, to dismiss the expansion of Medicaid as not being an important thing is, um, is a, a little bit of a too narrow way to look at that. You, you know, people can't, access care to physicians and have, have primary preventive services, have a primary care physician, stay out of the emergency room, treat their chronic health conditions. You know, you can't do that very well if you don't have health insurance. And so the expansion of Medicaid was, is instrumental for all of those things. So then you come to, well, we've had it since what, 2014, and here we are in 2022, and the numbers haven't shifted. So what are we doing wrong? Well, you know, anyone who talks about healthcare knows that um, simply having access to healthcare isn't the only solution to the problem. You have to look at it holistically. You have to look at um, what they call social determinants of health. And you, when you make a commitment to changing outcomes, health outcomes for anyone, you have to look at housing, you have to look at transportation, you have to look at um, um, whether they have access to healthy food, then you have to look at their culture. You know, if, if the culture is to, um, is to eat a diet high that promotes um, heart disease, then how do you uh, meet people where they are to change those habits? You know, it's just, it's not so simple. 
The other thing is health outcomes take many years to change. And so I don't know how, I, I don't know when we throw the towel in, but, but at some point, um, more people getting preventive services, more people seeing a primary care physician has to make a difference at some point. Let me make a comment about uh, the, the pandemic management in the state and then ask you to <laughs> make a comment about my comment, <clears throat> my views. I mean, I thought that the governor did an outstanding job of uh, communicating with the, uh, the, the populace in the state um, uh, they, they ex- used resources, I thought, appropriately. On the other hand, the legislature spent most of his time trying to restrict the governor's activities. Now, I don't know how much, how much impact that had, that dysfunctional relationship had on the outcome. And I'd be kind of curious about your views on that from the standpoint of, uh, you know, I'm a journalist. So, you know, what what are your thoughts? Well, and so that's the that's what this particular report that I wrote about. It, it didn't take into uh, account um, personal choice because certainly in Kentucky and legislative measures, it didn't take those things into account. It simply yeah. looked at what how it is, like the numbers as they stand, and so uh, and. And, uh, and it didn't, you know, that's okay. It measured what it measured. But the reality is, is um, in hindsight, you know, and that's, you know, worth nothing. But in hindsight, if our legislature and our governor could have found uh, a middle ground, a, a place to work together on this issue, I can't fathom that it wouldn't have made a difference, especially around vaccination rates and compliance with masking. Because as health providers and health public health people know that those two things are, um, they work. They've been proven to work to decrease COVID in our state and to decrease the severity of the disease and hospitalizations. And so, um, I would have to uh, say that, um, you know, there was a Kaiser Family Foundation poll um, or story that just came out this week that that found that broadly that Republicans in particular um, simply don't are at a point in the COVID process where they do not um, trust government sources for health information about COVID. And so, therefore, um, those uh, there's a, a population of people who simply need to get that information from a trusted source. And so it sure would be nice if everyone was lined up, whether it be a lawmaker, the governor, the public health director, everyone lined up on the same page to, to give the same message, which is vaccines work, go get one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it wasn't just the state of Kentucky. We we had this on a national level in this country. I mean, some of the stuff that was coming out of the White House made the I mean, you make your head explode. Uh, let me ask you another. Uh, do another. Take it. Another. Go. Uh, uh, let me just. Uh, oh, go ahead, in here Jane, for just sure. a minute. I, uh, my wife and I developed this a political cartoon of a patient. <laughs> uh, there were four. 
picture. The patient um, uh, went to his doctor and the doctor said, why didn't you get vaccinated? And he said, well, uh, I don't know. I just didn't. And then the next picture shows him with COVID. And the next picture, uh, he's on a ventilator and he dies and he gets to heaven and uh, he says to God, why didn't you save me? And God says, well, I gave you two good vaccines. Why didn't you take them? <laughs> and my experience in rural Kentucky, this, some, some of these people just will not take it regardless of what you tell them. Um, I have reported on some of that. You know, when, you, when you're asking a, to your first question, when you ask about telehealth, did it have an impact? Like, what is your question? Did it have an impact on what? On access to care or COVID vaccines. I, I, I need to look clarification uh, on that. Access to uh, care and information regarding COVID. So I can't speak to um, access to information regarding COVID because, you know, quite honestly, that responsibility, um, in my opinion, falls to a physician every time he speaks to his patient. And, and when a physician doesn't take that opportunity to, to speak on a very personal level, meeting the patient where they are, no matter whether they're strongly against it or sign me up, you know, um, those opportunities were there for doctors every time they got on a telehealth phone call. I don't know if it happened. So um, the other, but regarding to access to care, you know, the federal government, Kentucky's been a rather progressive in um, parity and pay and um, a lot, you know, sort of being a little bit more progressive in the telehealth field than maybe some other states. But the federal rules that allowed um, people to um, have a telehealth visit on their telephone, like prior that hadn't been allowed, or to allow a patient to take a, a, a to have an appointment in their home instead of having to come to a clinic to have have the visit. You know, there were thing changes that made that did make it easier for people to have these visits. And yes, I think most places report that the, the number of visits uh, went up and, and that means access to care. That doesn't mean everyone took advantage of it. You know, there are barriers to telehealth care, you know, a lot of times uh, seniors are um, um, have, in particular, seniors are resistant or nervous or uh, need more education on how to manipulate their phones and their computers to get telehealth done. Um, but um, I think that um, many of them also just stepped right up and, and made it happen. So uh, there's lots of discussions about um what, what all of that will mean going forward. Yeah, we had a retired uh, internist on the program. Oh, it was probably nine, 12 months ago. And uh, she she said very much the same things, uh, that uh, there was just a lot more contact with folks who might not have, for one reason or another, and this was during the pandemic, mm-hmm. been able to have, have gotten uh, medical advice just because they could simply do it on their phone 
or on their computer or whatever uh, uh, opportunity they had to to do that without having to get into a car or a truck or a bus or walk to get to a physician's office. Let me uh, your article on the very first page. There's a there there's a, there are three questions that um, apparently they were that are asked by this um, was it the score bar card state health system performance and the first one here is do americans have good access to health care does their health insurance enable them to get the care they need to stay healthy well i want to i want to share with you one of my rants about u.s health care and get your views about this um uh unfortunately in this country uh we do not have a health care system uh, most of the other first world countries have healthcare systems that focus on providing care to their citizens. And we, we could go through a whole, whole list of the different ones. I'm not going to do that. Uh, unfortunately, in this country, we have a healthcare industry, which is focused on extracting profit from healthcare activities. And there's a gazillion examples about this, but I just want to give you one example, then I'm, I'd like to get your views about this. The, probably the most outrageous example are the for-profit insurance companies who literally extract, and Gene has got some really good data about, about this in a, in a sort of global sense. They extract hundreds of billions of dollars um, out of healthcare for an assortment of non-healthcare activities from outrageous <laughs> CEO salaries of 20, $30 million a year, political contributions, administrative activities, on advertising, on and on and on. And, and let me ask, how, how do you, what are your thoughts, again, as a journalist, about uh, our system of healthcare industry versus a healthcare system where most other first world countries have this run by the central government? Well, you know, my, my first, um, my first response would be, you know, our health and hospital associations um, have tremendous uh, lobbying power and, uh, and so uh, the challenge, uh, and, and, and generally as a um, people, just as a people, we don't like change. You know, we, we like, we know how things are the way it is. And uh, we've kind of fallen on the, uh, the haves and the have nots of who gets care. Um, and I'm not going to say people are comfortable with that, but they're certainly familiar with it. And so making any sort of dress that moves toward um, uh, a different way to do it, to um, provide universal coverage, to increase primary care and preventive care, um, to, to look at those social determinants of health as a, as a thing that needs to be provided and paid for, or to um, reduce those administrative burdens that you've talked about, like any any holistic movement to, to provide those things um, initially will be very, very painful. And so 
I don't know. Um, I think that I think something will happen. I think that at some point we the whole healthcare system, you know, we've all all journalists have written that statement that um, among high income countries, the United States spends more on health care than any other country and has the worst outcomes. And yes, so, yes, absolutely. You know, we, we've all written that at some point. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, you, you can find documentation from that from numerous sources online. So um, something's going to have to happen. I don't know when it will happen. Um, I know there's a, a energy and kind of movement toward that, but, you know, we're so divided right now. You know, when you, when you have a country that's sort of split down the middle on ideation, it's hard to, to get movement forward. No, I agree. And it's going to take a long time. Gene, you want to make a few comments about your, your the financial information that you've shared us on, on a number of occasions on this program, uh, kind of where the money goes in healthcare in this country? Well, uh, we spend about $3.6 trillion. I'm not sure I could sit down and write that down, how much money that is. I've forgotten how many zeros go in. Well, it's a lot more money than you and I ever. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I got interested in the amount of money being wasted in healthcare. And I, uh, these are gross numbers. It's impossible to get exact numbers because it changes every day. And it depends on how one interprets it. But approximately a third of that money is uh, wasted and has nothing to do with health care. One example is uh, all the profits that insurance companies are making. No one else uh, makes health care a profit margin. Uh, They're all uh, nonprofit where if there's any money made, it goes back into the system. It would go back into uh, reducing uh, the cost of the premium or expanding uh, benefits. Another example is advertising. Uh, we're the uh, only country in the world uh, that where doctors, lawyers, drug companies advertise to the uh, community uh, on a broad base. Only uh, New Zealand, as far as I know, allows uh, that type of advertising and they only allow drug companies. And I don't really know why, but we waste a phenomenal amount of money uh, doing that. And uh, if we just took that amount of money and applied it directly to uh, healthcare, uh, we could probably uh, pay for the whole system and uh, may even save some money. That's a really scary thought. Uh, <laughs> from a journalistic standpoint, uh, have you got some thoughts about what Gene just said? I mean, I, I, it's the the question really is what do you how, what do you do about it? And and I think we all agree whatever happens, it's going to take a long time. Right. Well, you know, um, uh, Senator uh, Meredith. Uh, is always working to decrease administrative cost in our Medicaid managed care organization system. You know, um, he, he insists 
that if we we can get, um, he's conceded to having only three managed care organizations. What do we have right now, five or six? Um, but he insists if we could just even skinny that down to two or three, then all of a sudden you're not, you're only, you're getting rid of a whole lot of administrative costs. So, so the, uh, there's just, there's always someone with a, um, a suggestion, but that's like a drop in the bucket. That's, you know, when I hear ideas like that, I'm like, well, that's just, you know, one skinny little piece of the problem. And so, but is that how it's going to get, is that how we move forward is a little piece at a time is to fix a little piece at a time. I don't know. Um, then beyond that, um, if we were to get rid of insurance companies in a system where um, it's all, I'm imagining it's all a government system, like that's what I imagine that we're maybe talking about here. Um, if we got rid of all of the insurance co companies, then that's a whole population of people who don't have jobs anymore. What, what happens to them? And so um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, but there's so many layers of challenges to this particular issue that um, I, I'm just not sure how, I, I'm just not sure what, how it will resolve going forward. Yeah, I don't think you have to get rid of insurance companies. Uh, Canada and Australia both established universal health care systems in 1984. That was a while ago. So I guess you were, back, you were still practicing as a nurse back in those days. And um, uh, you know, they're similar but different. In Canada, they cover um, hospital and physician costs, and you need other insurance to for drugs, uh, sight, hearing, and some of those other issues. And uh, in both Canada and Australia, and in Britain, you know, the National Health Service, and a whole bunch of other countries, there are insurance companies. They're just not for-profit insurance companies, or if they are for-profit insurance companies, the government-run insurance, which is competitive, you know, is a good competitor to the the extent of the profit that the insurance companies extract out of the system. You know, just another example that, you know, Gene, Gene been practicing down in Campbellsville for uh, 35 or 40 years. Australia has a Department of Rural Health. Now, rural health in this country, I'll let Gene, he knows much more about that than I do. He's <clears throat> really got some problems. We've talked about that a little bit already with no, uh, uh, no specialists, uh, transportation issues, financial issues, hospitals closing. They, they focused a, an entire governmental department on making sure that there's good health care in the outback. So we don't have to get rid of insurance companies. They just need to be not allowed to run the system. Uh, another example of a non-for-profit insurance company is uh, Germany and Switzerland. They have a lot of insurance companies which patients uh, can choose, but they're all not-for-profit. And it's like the old Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, they went for profit in the late 90s i think but prior to that uh if they made money uh it went the money went back into uh 
the system to uh, decrease premiums and increase uh, assets. Uh, all that's gone now, I think. Uh, uh, do you know of any uh, non-for-profit uh, insurance company? I, I don't. I mean, there may be some, but I, I don't know about that. Uh, Melissa, do you have you had a, an opportunity as a journalist to get out into the rural parts of the, the state? You know, I've always wondered well, what people are thinking in rural Kentucky, and I've talked with Gene about this a little bit, and I know kind of some of his views, but as a, as a, you know, as a observer of, uh, of activity as a journalist, I was wondering if you've been out there, you know, because you wonder, uh, there's so many issues. Why, why, why do they keep putting people in office who, who, <laughs> who make policy that is against their economic and health interest. And I, I, I just, for the life of me, don't understand. I just wondering if, have you had an opportunity to get out there enough to get a sense about this? Well, no, you know, the way Kentucky health news is set up. Um, I, I'm only a part time. I only work part time. And so my hours are um, a bit limited as far as doing that sort of field work. Um, hope is that when I write an article um, and then it shoots out to every newspaper across the state is that they can take my article as a, as a foundational piece and then go out into their community and ask those questions. But, you know, we all know that staffs in, in rural um, community newspaper rooms are, are diminishing and, uh, yeah. and even closing. And so the challenge the challenge there is that while I'm not the person who generally goes out and asks those questions, we have newsrooms that are um, so small and their time too. So um, time and budget and resources are so limited that they're not uh, oftentimes um, taking the time, like maybe they were able to 40 years ago to go out and ask that question. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is, yes, there are a lot of uh, reasons for, in particular, simply asking, why did you vote for who you voted for? You know, uh, just simply what, what drove your decision in that vote? And then even saying, are you aware that, um, that if you vote for this person, you know, they're against or for these certain things, you know, those questions need to be asked. And right now, I, I guess, broadly speaking, I'm, I don't think they're being asked. Well, I can tell you that most uh, elections, at least local elections in most uh, rural communities in Kentucky are, are based on not issues, but uh, friendship and uh, certain local issues and getting roads paved and graveled, et cetera. Right, right. Well, that's, but, uh, <laughs> but healthcare is in this country today is a really important thing. We're all getting older. More and more people, Gene, are looking like you and me. <laughs> and Mark and, and, and Melissa. But and that's why that's just, I, I just, I don't, I just don't understand. Um, I don't understand that. Well, I think most people don't think about uh, what's going to happen when they get older. They don't think about getting cancer or getting sick. And then uh, when they get it, uh, 
they don't know what to do. And that's, uh, we have to guide them through that. But I, I don't think that, and most people even think about preventative care. It's something that doesn't cross their mind, particularly young people. Um, they, well, and, and I can add too, that for, for years and years, people have depended on their emergency rooms for their care. And so um, even though someone doesn't have health insurance, they, um, they, they are, you, you know, they can't be turned away from an emergency room environment. And so um, they simply, if they have the flu or if they, you know, have whatever sort of health condition come upon them, that's where they go for care. And, um, and therefore, you know, the, the, the emergency room ends up taking a loss if they're not able to pay for it. And as everyone here knows, the cost of care in an emergency room is exorbitant. It's just not, it's not, it's not the way to go. Well, uh, the culture on that has really changed. I went into practice in Campbellsville in 1978 and the family doctor uh, had personal relationships with, with their patient and he was in control. Uh, If, uh, if we, I know several family doctors, if they went, in, if they had a patient that went in the emergency room and didn't be be there, he would scold them. Like for example, if a patient showed up in the ER with a rash, he'd tell them, "Get out and come to my office tomorrow." Uh, but you can't do that anymore. You can't control the patients. The patient and administrators are in total control. Uh, Melissa, let me ask you another question about another aspect of of um, of medical care in this country that has changed during during the time that I've I've been in medicine. When I started, went through my training and came to Louisville, um, physicians basically ran their own practices, had small practices, different size ones. And I was in private practice for a number of years before I joined the university. Today, um, most physicians work for somebody else, uh, whether it's a hospital system, a healthcare system, um, their private equity organizations running practices. So, because <clears throat> when I was a president of the medical staff at one of the Louisville hospitals, we could go to administration and and they listened to us. We we were I mean we had influence, and I remember at this way back in the seventies, people smoked in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And as a chairman of the cancer committee, I went to the the president of the medical staff. And I said, "This is crazy." Had cigarette machines in the hospitals <laughs> and you know and and the read the problem was there were some people from the tobacco companies on the board of directors but anyhow they took they 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 took them out and and you know we we did have influence like that today um a lot of that's gone uh if you were if you're getting a paycheck from one of these systems, whether it's a hospital system or a healthcare system, one example that I I experienced before I retired was they would quote encourage unquote you 
to refer within the system. Mm -hmm. And I did some very specialized surgery and I would, would see changes, pattern changes where people wouldn't be referred as much. And then maybe at six months later, some of the um, uh, un, un, unexpected or um, unhappy consequences of having something done by somebody who wasn't that experienced occurred. Um, I'm just wondering, from a journalistic standpoint, have you had uh, has that has that something that's crossed your path? Have you had some thoughts about that, or had any uh, opportunity to kind of get a sense about how medicine is different in this um, more corporate-run um, medical care today than it was 20 or 30 years ago? You know, that's not something I've written about. However, um, just, you know, it's, it's brought, you know, just sort of anecdotally or just from having had conversations with physicians uh, over the years, you know, as you well know, the decision of a physician or a physician's group to join those big systems uh, is influenced by um, trying to make um, similar money that they met, that they could have made years ago that they're just simply yeah. not yes without being part of one of those systems and also influenced likely by um, malpractice protections uh, having sort of a, a bigger group to um, you know to cushion some of that maybe um, but um, it, it's sort of been my understanding that uh, a lot of that's just been simply been driven by the economics of being a physician right now, uh, trying to survive in this um, post-ACA world. I, I think part of the issue is the, is the complexity and the time that now the average practicing physician has got to spend doing this electronic health, health records a process which is focused mostly on 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 billing and not on not on healthcare. Gene, you and got there's some no thoughts question about that. that. One of the biggest issues is time. If if you're in private practice, there's literally not enough time uh, to uh, uh, code and and to do electronic medical records and to do all the uh, pre-authorization, et cetera, et cetera. And your overhead goes way uh, out of sight and you you it's hard to uh, break even and that's uh, to the point that unless you're in a very large group uh, you can't do that and you have to depend upon a hospital um, now, there was one other thing i wanted to talk about we were talking about tobacco now you got to realize that we've had a tremendous uh, cultural change uh, in tobacco most people uh, don't smoke now, even in rural areas. And I remember the day where several doctors had um, grew tobacco. I uh, remember the day when doctors smoked in a hospital, uh, when the Red Cross ladies would give cigarettes away in the VA. <laughs> and that's all changed. And uh, well, that's, same, a, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But so maybe we can change the attitude of uh, vaccination. Um, the average person doesn't really realize how important vaccination is. The reason that all of us have gotten to the age that we are 
is because of vaccination and control of infectious disease and good water and good sewers. And we we all seem to think it's due uh, to uh, surgery and modern drugs. Obviously, they make a tremendous um, uh, advance, uh, progress, but still, if you don't have good water, uh, you um, you can't fix everything. Well, listen, let me ask you again, another give you a, a, another opportunity to make some comments on what I consider a, a really interesting and worrisome aspect of medical care today. Now, we're in the post-Roe versus Wade uh, world. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to do is to get um, um, some guests to do a program with us on uh, women's health issues post Roe versus Wade. Mm. I have one uh, a retire, retired physician who is not uh, an obstetrician or gynecologist who has a personal story. And I've been trying to get a female uh, obstetrician gynecologist to come on and discuss these issues. And that's been very difficult. Mm-hmm. And they're, they don't want to. They're, they're, some of them have uh, professional fears and some of them have personal fears about this. I, I wonder if this is something you've you have whether this how that how does this fit into the journalism world that you live in um well i i think when journalists go to speak to um to people who um support abortion rights um often they'll go through the aclu or through planned parenthood which are um organizations that are very vocal about what what they believe to be um, appropriate health care for women. And so I think so so finding a, um, a physician or finding um, someone who can speak to that topic when you go through one of those organizations is not I think that's where most journalists lean toward. I think the challenge of course is when you um, are trying to find simply um, any, we'll just say an emergency room physician who is who is right now struggling to, to related to the health of the of the woman. Um, that's just a real struggle they're having right now, and the federal government's tried to clarify that, but it's still. Um, there's still just so much uncertainty around that issue. So the, those physicians who don't perform abortions regularly are the ones who are probably uh, going to be really hard to to want to put their voices out there. I read an article just uh, the last few days where a patient in Texas had a miscarriage but had retained fetal products, and she couldn't find anybody to do a DNC for her. Mm-hmm. And the ultrasound showed that the fetus was dead and deteriorating. Yeah, I mean that you can die from that. Right, that, that gets it. That gets infected, and, right. and, and you get you can get sepsis. It's really scary. Some of the rules that uh, various states are put in place 
not just dealing with the individuals in their states. I, I don't understand this law that that they've they've got in Texas that allows a private citizen to um, sue somebody in another state who helped someone from Texas go to uh, whatever state it is and have some kind of, of abortion care that's illegal in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, 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 this just, uh, you, have you thought about some of those things from a journalistic standpoint or had, had, a, had to deal with that at all? <laughs> you know, I, I haven't, but you know, my, um, um, I made sort of flippant remark to my boss that uh, that that this legislative session might be full of such um, um, law uh, bills, yeah. which will which will not allow a woman to cross state lines to get an abortion. And and he and my boss was like, oh, that that's he just couldn't even believe that was was real. And um, and and if you will peruse the the journalists who regularly write about abortion, we're seeing this discussion um, creep up everywhere about uh, restrict potential restrictions put on uh, women to cross straight state lines. And so, will that come to pass? You know, we'll, well see. You wonder wonder who 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 do they go after? I I understand the the um the physician who would either provide the pills or or do the the surgical uh, procedure and, and then maybe somebody in the facility now if this woman takes a uber from her hotel to the, to the yeah. place, does it involve the uber driver or the person in the hotel who, who's who checks them in, I, you know, you, when you think about this, this is a draconian kind of, of, of I mean, this is almost like Taliban, you know, the, the women are going to have to be wearing um, towels on their heads. Uh, it's just fascinating. Well, um, I, I will simply say, yes, it is fascinating, but it's also um, it, 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 these are patients, these are humans, these are women who, who need health care quite often. And um, this type, you know, abortion health care, and they are, um, they're, they're being faced with um, decisions and uh, transportation costs and organization costs and, uh, you know, that all of that takes time. And, you know, to have um, a medication abortion is what, less than nine or 10 weeks. You know, by the time you work through all of the processes to get to a state that you can have an abortion, sometimes you move over into um, that 11th week, that 12th week, which means that you need a different type of abortion. It can't be a medication one anymore. So it's, it's fascinating, but these are real people that are having to make these decisions every day. Oh, and it's it's what's really scary is what what Jean's talking about because if you, if a woman has got an ectopic pregnancy and there's a heartbeat, 
if mm -hmm. some of these, these these draconian rules say that you can't do anything if there's a heartbeat well if that if that ectopic pregnancy in the uterine tube ruptures that's mm -hmm. that's that can be fatal in the same well, and, way go and, ahead and there there are journalists writing that exact story already that that's happening that's not a thing that we'll, that we'll is not a, that's yeah. not a a hypothetical that is a thing that is happening i'm glad that is and you know if the water breaks and they have a miscarriage and and now if those contents stay in there then it, it get, they get infected or they could bleed and either or both and and both either or both of those can be fatal it's really scary to think that of the politicians who are making these laws about something that they really don't know very much about. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you a quick story about that. We're running short on time here. I got one other issue I want oh, to bring go, up. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, a quick, I, I've told this story before. There was a surgeon in Louisville many years ago who retired. And Mark has given me the four finger sign where so we're getting close to the end. I'm going to tell it very quickly. Um, and he ran for public office. He was elected. I'm not going to mention his name. He gave a talk at the Louisville Surgical Society many years ago. He told us two things. Number one, which we've heard before, making laws is like making sausage and how he made it. He, he sponsored a law. And by the time it went through the committee system, it had changed so much. He voted against his own. And the other thing he told us, which is the pur purpose of my comment here, is that the politicians do not know anything about health care. He's very clear about that. People, they, they own garages, they're lawyers, they have an assortment of other business opportunities. They really don't understand health care. Gene, go ahead. Uh, in your article, you mentioned dental care. Can you just comment about that? Well, I can. You know, um, it, it's still shocking to me that um, that health that health insurance doesn't always involve uh, providing dental care because we pretend like the mouth isn't part of the body and or a part of our health system. And we all know um, just over, as time has passed that, you know, when you have a tooth infection, it, it affects your whole body. So um, in particular, there's a lot of discussion right now about um, trying to increase rates for Medicaid, uh, denti dentists who accept Medicaid. Um, nationally, there's a number that uh, about 25 to 35% of dentists accept Medicaid, but the reality is uh, it's much lower than that because some of them have a number and don't, you, they have the number, the Medicaid number, provider number, but they don't use it or they only take one or two patients. It's a real problem, especially among our poorest Kentuckians who so desperately need uh, dental care and have such a hard time finding it. Uh, Melissa, I think we're about the end of the time here. I want to thank you again. You've been a great guest. We've enjoyed talking with you. Your article is great, and, and you've made a lot of good, good clear points. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark's going to take us out of here. Thanks, everybody. Great job. Uh, now, other countries with forms of universal health care coverage may require supplemental insurance for services not covered. But to repeat, Kentuckians for single-payer health care 
supports an, ex an expanded and improved Medicare for All program for all medically necessary services with no deductibles, no co-payments, no co-insurance, a true one-payer system. And to, um, to Melissa's issue about a Medicare for All program creating unemployment there in the insurance industry, some of the legislation has been proposed to address that to retrain and re-employ workers displaced due to reduced administration and include employment transition benefits up to $100,000. You can learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer health care and our campaigns by going to our website kyhealthcare.org kyhealthcare.org. You can follow the group on Facebook, Twitter. Um, we meet twice each month using Zoom. And if you'd like to attend a meeting, you can reach out to Kay Tillo. She's our chair. And Kay's email address is nursenpo at AOL.com. Nurse NPO at AOL.com. Kay would send you an invitation to a meeting. And uh, for single payer radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening and please support your local nonprofit independent media outlet. Community interest not stockholder interest.